Lord God, may the words of my mouth be acceptable to you this morning. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can grab a seat. Have you ever done uh, one of those escape rooms? This is where they lock you with your friends in a room and you have to figure out all these clues and hints to try and find a way out and hopefully remain friends with the people around you uh, by the end of it. Um, I, I did one of these this summer with uh, some of my InterVarsity colleagues and we were locked into this kind of mad scientist's laboratory, which was the theme of the escape room. And uh, as we kind of figured out the clues and we're making slow progress, we eventually uncovered uh, a light switch. And so we flicked a light switch, assuming that that was the next step. And what happened was the normal lights turned off and a UV light turned on, like a, like a dark light. And all of a sudden, we saw an entirely different room. We hadn't moved, but everything looked different. All of a sudden, there was this like fluorescent paint that you could suddenly see these messages that had been around us the whole time. But they now interpreted what was going on in the room, provided clues for how to understand this room rightly. There was a whole unseen thing that had not been exposed to us, but suddenly with the flick of a switch, we saw a different way of seeing this room. And so we made some progress in the puzzles and didn't eventually make it out of the room. We didn't, we didn't find the SD card, which was trapped in the skeleton's head, and so uh, we, we, we failed in that endeavor, but nevertheless remained friends. But that flicking of a switch is something that happens at times in Scripture, where God enables his people to see unseen things which completely change the understanding of what is going on, which completely reinterpret uh, the situation. One of those examples is in 2 Kings 6, when Elisha is in a town and he's surrounded by these enemy armies, and his servant is freaking out, but he's fine. And he says to the servant, he says, there are more with us than there are with them. And the servant's eyes are open to see that, that, that UV light is switched on. And he sees the legions of God's armies protecting Elisha, which suddenly makes sense of what Elisha was doing at calm, uh, being calm in that city. I sometimes feel like when I'm, in, when I'm worshiping in a big cathedral, I kind of have this moment in my imagination where I almost see like the switch flicking and, I, and I, I imagine what might be happening in the heavenly realms above us. You know, these cathedrals have these high ceilings and sometimes in the artwork up there, they have representations of like angels who might be singing along with us in worship. I'm not making any particular claims of whether this is actually happening or not, but there's an invitation to imagine what might be happening in unseen realms as we offer our worship on the ground and heaven joins with us in praise. And in today's gospel reading, Jesus flicks the switch on our understanding of a story. He's telling a parable uh, a parable of something that might not be too uncommon to see in the world around you. And there's a more mundane story underneath what Jesus is telling, right? There's a story of a rich man who's, you know, influential in society. He has important friends. He's got a nice house. And at his gate is a poor man, a poor man, a sickly man, 
The rich man eventually, as we all do, dies. He has a big funeral. A lot of people come and give him profound eulogies and speak about his contributions to society. And the poor man, well, eventually he dies too. And the guards pick up his body and throw it in the ditch to get it out of the way. That's how you would see this story if you just had eyes for this world. But Jesus flicks the switch. Because the introduction is the same, the rich man who feasted sumptuously, the poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who was hungry, the poor man died. So far, the story is the same. But then the switch flicks. And he was carried away by angels to be at the side of Abraham. And the rich man also dies. No mention of an elaborate funeral. But he finds himself in this place called Hades. And Jesus tells this story, and there's lots of things we can notice as Jesus shows this unseen realm, which changes our interpretation of what's going on here. So just a few things to notice in the text. One of the first things people notice in this is Lazarus is named, and the rich man is not, right? It's actually pretty rare in Jesus' parables for him to name someone. This, I think, might be the only case. Um, and it's interesting because it is, this is a parable. Jesus isn't saying this is what happened. He's telling a story to make a point. But the name in it kind of does give it a bit of an aura of reality. Like it's, it's kind of describing stuff that very much goes on rather than just an allegorical illustration. But of course, the rich man doesn't get a name, which is part of the inverting process that Jesus is highlighting of, of who's the main character in this story. But though the rich man knows Lazarus's name, because he uses Lazarus's name, he never addresses Lazarus, right? Even when he's in Hades and he, he talks to Abraham and says, send Lazarus to come and give me some relief. You know, he's used to talking to the important people. He's used to passing Lazarus by, and he's continuing to do this. Tell the lesser person what to do. And this really highlights the heart of what is the sin of this rich man. Because in other parables, we get, you know, this, just, you know, um, a manager or a debt owner uh, sort of like beating their servants and stuff like that. Nothing like that is said about this rich man. What is really happening with this rich man is the sin of passing by, of passing by the image of God who is suffering and going into your own comfort for no concern for the one who is at your gate who needs your care. It's like it was talking about in Amos, those who do not grieve, are not grieved in the light of the immense suffering that is happening right in front of you. You see, the rich man has eyes only for his own comfort, for the things that he can get for himself in his world, his wealth. And Abraham's response to the rich man's petition is something that echoes something that Jesus uses as a constant refrain in the Sermon of the Mount and the equivalent verses here in Luke. Because Abraham says, look, in your life you got your good things, you got your lot. And Lazarus, he got bad things. And so now he gets the comfort and you get the agony. It's kind of like, it's similar. It's the same argument that Jesus is making when he says, when you pray, don't go out on the streets like the Pharisees do, seeking the praise of man. I tell you, they have received their reward. 
But you, go into your closet, shut the door, and the Father who sees in secret, he will reward you. Which reward are you seeking? The one of this world that is perishing or the one of a, another world, of a life beyond, the reward that is held in God, the treasure in heaven, the reward that persists forever? Abraham is describing this great reversal, the way which God makes just the injustices of this world that things that are broken and unfair and unequal in this world are made right in the next. And then the rich man pivots, and all of a sudden he's concerned. Oh yeah, Abraham then describes that this can't be done because of a great chasm, which he doesn't have the authority to cross, a pass, cross past. And so the rich man then pivots to talk about the need for a warning for his brothers, right? Uh, you know, and Abraham says... The rich man says, send Lazarus to warn my brothers. And he says, they have the prophets, listen to them. No, surely if someone comes back from the dead, they'll believe. And Abraham says, if they do not listen to the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus here in his parable is giving a clear foreshadowing of the role he would take. as the one who dies and rises from the dead, but still some will not believe. Some will not put their trust in in him. Many will not. And as people read this passage, as Jesus flicks the switch and shows us this unseen world behind what otherwise might be a relatively mundane story, you know, some people's primary purpose of this passage is to describe in particular detail the exact nature of heaven and hell or Hades and paradise. And there's a whole other sermon, which I'm sure you'd love to hear, uh, talking in a broader biblical sense of how we talk, can talk specifically or to what extent we can talk specifically about those things. But I think it's an overuse of this passage to kind of get into the minute details of what exactly is or isn't in the afterlife based on this parable alone. But nevertheless, Jesus' point here makes no sense, has no interpretive power without the reality of a life beyond, without something beyond this world that we see where God, uh, where God can make things right and turn things on their head. Because what Jesus is doing in this passage is showing us that when this flick when the switch is flipped, when you see the unseen things, everything is fundamentally different. The power structures are inverted. And our perspective on what is valuable is flipped upside down. You know, one of the things that Jesus says that just constantly rattles around in my head is when he says, what does it profit someone to gain the whole world but to lose their soul? Because he's always so regularly making this point that there's going to be so much on offer to you in this world, so much gain you can have with the things that you can see, but it's going to be at the cost of this unseen thing that is important to God but might not be important to the world, which is your soul. And if you only have eyes for the world, only have eyes to see the seen things, you will kind of think, oh, gain in the world, that's great, I'm gaining. But if you have eyes to see the unseen things, you will realize how bad of a trade that is. You have lost out in that exchange if you're willing to trade your soul or parts of it for gain in the world. 
Jesus' point here is to show us a different system. Because in the world's eyes, in the seen world's system, power and money win. Influence and status and career, popularity, all these ways that we can make ourselves great are the things that you use to get ahead. Those are the things that are valuable in this world. That's how the systems work here. But when we see the world beyond, what matters is love. Love of God and love of His image. Care for His image bearers. Because had the rich man seen the reality beyond, there's no way he could have walked past Lazarus at his gate every day to go in and live his comfortable life. When we see through the lens that when that switch is flipped and see the reality that is around us all the time but we do not see, then the call is to bend the resources of this world towards the love of God and the love of his image bearers, the love of people. Jesus is always calling us to live a life in light of a world which we do not see, to forego gain in the world's economy in order to gain in a world which is more real than our own. You know, sometimes this has been wrongly emphasized. I wouldn't say overemphasized. It's been wrongly emphasized uh, by Christians to make it seem like who cares about this world? All that matters is that you escape this world with your, with your, with your soul and, and like leave this place behind. Nothing could be further from the truth. The call here is to see God's world, to see the unseen world, to see God's vision for justice and to act and love in this world in a way that is in accordance of the world that is to come to live in accordance with the justice that God is pursuing and make decisions in this world for the love of this world in ways that make sense of a world that is not here yet. So it's not about escaping this world and not really caring about it, but it's a caring about it radically, but walking to the beat of a different drum. This is an entirely new way of seeing. And there's an impossibility in it. Like, even in the phrase that I've been using, seeing the unseen, like, just grammatically, there's an impossibility in that, right? You, by definition, you cannot see unseen things. It has to be shown to us. We have to look to Jesus, because he is the one who flicks the switch. You know, in this parable, he flicks the switch using rhetoric. He's telling a story. But, you know, if it's just about the information on the page, then I can just read it out to you and you get the same information. But what is more important is the way in which he fulfills the foreshadowing that he says in that last line. Because he is the one who not just tells us about an unseen world, but he is the one who has gone there and come back. He is the one who has the greater authority than Abraham to cross that chasm and come to us in our desperate state and welcome us into his family when we were not deserving. And in light of what he has done, the one who has gone into death and come back to life, we are called to live in light of his reality. 
The heart here is not to be a people who by our cunning and guise just uh, live according to something that isn't real to us in any way, just because someone told us. It's to live in light of the one who died and rose again as evidence of that world that we cannot see. And that makes us think that if God has gone to such, such lengths to welcome us, to cross uncrossable chasms, how can we not go to great lengths to welcome the other, to include the one at our gate, to show them love? When we really see Jesus for who he is and for what he has done, we are not to be the ones for whom someone rising from the dead is not enough. We are to be the ones who look to Jesus and say, everything turns on this. Everything changes on this. You know, we've been talking as we walk through Luke about hospitality. And Luke's vision of hospitality as expressed through, uh, through the stories of Jesus in, in Luke. And I don't know about you, but this, this word of hospitality to me kind of comes with it some baggage of like niceness and warmness and fuzziness. And, and I, I think genuine Christian hospitality includes niceness and warmness and fuzziness. But it's more than that. It's more deeply rooted in that. Christian hospitality, at its heart, is a radical reordering of what matters in light of unseen things that have been revealed in Jesus Christ. That is the heart of Chris, uh, Christian hospitality. That the God who has gone to such lengths to welcome us, we must, we are compelled to welcome the other at our door. To bring them in, to include them, to give them the things that they need. At the heart of the rich man's failing was walking past the one who bore the image of God and having no concern for that person because he was focused on the things of the world. We need to do the inverse, to forego the gain and comfort of the world so that we can welcome and love the one who bears the image of God who is sitting at our gate. We are called to live in response to the one who has done this for us, the one who has saved us, who has crossed that chasm. And we strive to live in response to that, to live in a different way in accordance to a different world. So what might that look like for us? Well, I'm really struck by this call to love the one at your gate. We live in a big, complex world, and we know of pain and suffering and hardship that exists far, far away. And I think it's good and important to, to give to charities and aid programs that are helping those in need uh, far away to be concerned about global poverty. But sometimes I think we get confused. And we use the reality of, of people who are in greater suffering far away to excuse ourselves from the call to love the one at our gate. It's not what Jesus did, right? Jesus did not go to the ends of the earth and wait till he found the most desperate situation and there applied his love. Most of Jesus' healings, most of Jesus' miraculous acts were on the way while he was passing by and he encountered the person in front of him who was in need 
and he met that person's need. We are called to love the one at our gate, the one that we seek. So let's not fall into a trap of absolving ourselves of loving the one in front of us because of our our awareness of bigger problems. That's not how God sees it. And we are also called to bend the resources that we have access to in this world for gain in the other world, in the coming world, to love God and love those who bear his image. You know, Dave preached about a different parable last week about the shrewd manager who knew he was on the out and he had access to these resources in his current reality. And he's like, what's the point of my access to all these, re- these resources if I'm on the way out? I know what I'll do. I'll use them now to buy friends that will help me out later, right? And in a way that's maybe somewhat similar to that, we're called to look at what we have access to now and say, look, how is this valuable for something that I don't yet see? How can I bend the resources that I have access to for the sake of loving God and loving our neighbor? What's the role of your stuff, your property in this? If you're someone who has a home, what's your vision of your home? Is your vision of your home a safe place, your castle, where you get to escape from the world and its problems so you don't have to be grieved by the things that are going on in the world because you've got your own comfortable place? Or is your vision of your home a place where there is an open door, a door of welcome where those who need it can come in and receive hospitality, receive food and a welcome? And not just people who you would normally be in touch with, but, but a broader invite as well. What's the role of your stuff, your possessions? You know, we have at this church, we've been sharing around a resource share spreadsheet where you can put up on there uh, your stuff for other people in this community to use. Is your stuff primarily to bless and love others or just to gain comfort for yourself? How do we think about our money? How do we think about giving, using our money for the sake of others rather than for the sake of ourselves? You know, there's a whole other, you know, talk about a lot of details about like giving and how we should think about giving. But I will say one thing that I've been struck by is statistically, people give a smaller percentage of their income the wealthier they get, right? And that doesn't, kind of doesn't really make sense, but it's what people do. Because you could actually give a higher percentage of your income as your income increases, and you'd still have more left over uh, for yourself. What does it look like to, to subvert the expectations of giving and choose to be people who think about our money differently? Giving it in increasing measure um, as income might go up. For a lot of people, obviously not any, everyone, income goes up. As you get older, it suddenly drops down. Uh, And so predicting that that might be your future, can you plan now for what it might look like for you to be a faithful giver for those who are in need uh, as, as you get older? And we don't have to just do this as individuals. We can do this together. You know, we here as the church, we're, we're under this call in Acts 2 and Acts 4 of being a place where there is no one in need among us. And one of the ways that we express that as a church is we have this benevolence fund, um, a, a resource that you can find on the website that anyone can, can ask for to help anyone in our community uh, who is at need. 
And I would just encourage you, like if, if you are in need in terms of basic necessities or not even basic necessities, I encourage you to reach out. Let us fulfill our call to be a community where there is none who are in need. Reach out, use that resource. We want to be a, a, an abundant community of lavish generosity as we live out the call that in our community, there are not those without need because we're living in accordance with the different reality that Jesus has shown us. Call us out on us. Call us out on it if you think we're not doing it. We want to be a community where there is none among us who are in need. But finally, getting to the heart of what, uh, what the rich man was doing is we need to be deeply skeptical about comfort. We need to see the deep danger of comfort. It's a risk factor to us when we experience and live into comfort. Because we hear that what Abraham is saying in the parable and what Jesus is saying is like, do you want your comfort now or do you want it later? Because it's going to be better later, right? We also need to recognize that comfort distorts us. It is because of the comfort that the rich man had no concern for Lazarus at his gate. It organizes our mind towards the ways in which we can serve ourselves rather than the ways that we can serve others. So when we notice ourselves and our instincts veering towards comfort, we need to have alarm bells going off. Danger, danger. Something's going wrong. I need to reorder this. And even in reading a passage like this, which, you know, in a very individualistic, consumeristic society where your business is your own, you know, being kind of challenged on how you use your stuff can be very uncomfortable. And you have all these defense mechanisms that, that come up. We all do. You need to be very, very, uh, you need to be your own worst critic on those things. You need to be very skeptical about your desire to justify yourself and say, oh, but my situation is fine because of this, 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 and this. And to quickly tick maybe a couple of easy boxes and say, okay, I'm fine now. I actually think we need to abide in the discomfort that we feel from the call of Jesus in a moment like this. And make changes in our lives, but also never just take that step of saying, okay, I got it now. I'm fine now. And justifying ourselves. Don't let yourself jump too quickly into that place of comfort, but abide longer in the discomfort. Lest Jesus has more to teach you in that moment. Jesus is calling us to live a life that is in light of a world that we do not see. In this parable, he exposes that world. It's ultimately a warning for us to understand that we need to invest in things that matter in a world that we do not yet see. That we are called to love the one who is at our gate and not pass them by and to bend the resources that are at our disposal towards the things that matter in a world that is not here yet. So that we might be in accordance with a reality that is more real than our own. So I encourage you to look to Jesus, the one who has crossed the chasm, and see things that are not evident in this world and live in accordance with those. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us and thank you that you sent your son Jesus who crossed that chasm, who went those great lengths to save us so that we might have life. May we too extend that life and welcome to others, to those you put in our midst who are in need. Help us to live into this call. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.